This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 23 and beginning at verse 33, picking up from last week. I'm uh, interested in, in this particular passage of Scripture because I think I could preach a whole series on it. I, it it's a lot shorter than last week's, but I've, as I've gone over it, I've just seen so many sermons, I think, well, I ought to spend at least uh, six to eight weeks just on this particular passage. I want to focus on God's judgment being executed this morning. Judgment tends to bring fear. When you go in for a trial, uh, whoever's on trial, there is this, you know, tension that's there. Whether you're going to be in the jury pool or whether you're going to be the lawyer or whether you're going to be the defendant or the prosecutor and you're looking up at the judge, you know, and then and, and what's going to happen and what happens if guilty, what will transpire. And often we have this same concept when we think about both the end of our lives and when we think about other issues that may be judged. It seems that judgment standing before a judge brings fear. I sure I'm as guilty as others for having preached my share of hellfire and damnation ser sermons. I remember in the city of Thirsk, which is the home of uh, James Harriet was his pen name. And uh, so in the market square, I would stand up and I would preach and the buses would stop right by. And I remember this one bus pulled in and it said Scarborough. It was on its way to take its passengers to Scarborough. You may remember the song by Simon and Garfunkel. I'm going to Scarborough Fair, parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme. And so I'm looking at this bus and I said, do you know where you're going? It says on that bus that you're going to Scarborough. But I want to tell you, if you don't know Jesus, that bus will take you straight to hell. <laughs> Everybody was listening, but I'm, I'm not too sure that that is the most effective means of evangelism anymore. And uh, it certainly got people's attention and I, I, I seem to have fun, but... Hellfire and damnation is not really a very enticing way to get people to be saved. Jonathan Edwards, back during the big awakening, the great awakening in the United States, preached a sermon where he was a small man. He barely looked out over the pulpit. It's, they say that he read the sermon in a monotone voice. And I remember in, uh, in college... I had to read his sermon for uh, an English literature class to find out whether it was any good. And, and he, it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And they said that people were screaming and shouting while he was monotone preaching this sermon about what would happen to sinners in the hands of an angry God. Our focus is often turned to a God who is mad, angry at the world, wanting to put things right, sort of like a parent with a kid 
when we get around our grandkids and they start messing up, they can irk us. It's possible. And uh, they could get you going. They just have a knack for doing that. Kids have the ability to make you want to shout at them, to clean up their room, to do something, you know. I mean, <laughs> flush the toilet. Did you wash your hands, you know? Brush your teeth. How many times do I have to tell you to brush your teeth? You know, you, you, know, you go in and you say, did you, did you brush your teeth? No, I didn't brush. Why didn't you brush your teeth? Well, you didn't tell me to. You know, I'm sitting there going, dear me, you know. <laughs> and we end up having this effect that as we are as parents or as our parents were, were with us, that's how Almighty God must be. And so our, our, our understanding of God being a judge is warped by those very same things that we think that God is uh, being mean and he wants to finally tell us off so that we can get it right. Let's look at Luke 23 verses 33 to 49. And when they came to the place called the skull, where they crucified, there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, Remember that Jesus was carrying his cross. They put it on Simon. And there were two criminals that were following, observing everything that was going on in this process. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this one is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. <laughs> now, there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuses at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving what, was, what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, 
Certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Father, add the blessing of, to your word today. There's so many aspects to this that I could stop at each verse, it seems like. Uh, let's just start here with the very first verse. It says that when they came to the place called the skull where they crucified him there and the criminals. One on the right and one on the left. Crucifixion is a terrible, terrible thing. It was intended to be a terrible thing. It was used to subdue people. That when people saw them on the open spaces, especially on main roads going into cities, it would deter people from rising up against the Roman emperor. So this was something that they did as a means of making sure that people behaved themselves. If they tied your feet, as we assume they did with the criminals, their hands were tied and their feet were tied, it's a very long and painful death. When they did with Jesus was not any less painful, but by putting a spike through his ankles to nail him, it is a slightly quicker sense of death because you already have the, the uh, blood that's starting to pour out. Same is true if they nailed him through his wrists as well. Now what happens is that in the process of crucifixion, you die of asphyxiation. The reason is this, that as you're hanging there like this, you can't breathe. The pressure on your lungs is too heavy. So you have to lift yourself up with your legs, either trying to get up because of them being tied and your arms being tied so you can't move. So you're using all your strength to rise up to be able to breathe. And when that pain is too much from hanging like that, you slump forward. And so you have this movement forward that starts to pull your body, your bones out of joint. And eventually you can't get up anymore. You've worn yourself out and you die. Um, in order for, we read this in the other Gospels, for the two that it was getting to be late, for them to die more quickly, they broke their legs. And that way they couldn't raise themselves up and they're going to die of asphyxiation, an evil way. And you can only speak while you're up. And while they're mocking Jesus in the process, you have keys that revert back to the Lord's Prayer that are so prevalent 
where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They think they are in control, they have no idea. They have an idea of what they assume is happening, but they don't see the big picture. The same is true with words that are being used here. We have in, I've mentioned a few British words that you wouldn't use here in the United States. We have a different meaning for them. I, I remember, um, well, I won't use that illustration. It's not something to use in a sermon. But I remember using the term, it, it was a bomb, you know. And in some places, if something goes a bomb, it's really good. <laughs> it is fantastic. And other places it goes a bomb, it's disaster. <laughs> Which was it? Was it good or was it a disaster? Depends on where you live and who's listening. And so you can even use the same words and they have different meanings and understanding to the people who are listening to them. And that's the case here. Um, you have not only is Jesus now in this, in this position, he calls out to, for forgiveness. I hear that about the Lord's Prayer. He talks and they mention the king and the kingdom of God. That's powerful. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is part of the Lord's prayers. We see that in these moments. We have the title, the king of the Jews above him. That's the reason why he's being, being executed is because... He is a king, and a king is not allowed to be raised up and have kingship under Caesar. So that becomes the legal issue as to why he is being executed. You and I, we see that differently. We see the king of kings and the lord of lords much higher than Caesar. Being unrighteously executed in his innocence. We have gone through the judgments of Herod and of Pilate who have all claimed that he was innocent. And now we have two more that say that he's innocent. One is a criminal who says he's innocent and the other is a centurion who says he's innocent. In, in, in the midst of this, not only is that there, but you have the response of the multitude that come to see a spectacle as though this were the latest form of, I mean, I don't know why people watch horror movies, but there are people in this world that watch horror movies, and I, I don't like horror movies. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to invite the devil into my house by watching horror movies, you know, that's ridiculous. And, and in, the, in the process, people used to gather for spectacles like this, that was part of their entertainment. And they come out for the entertainment, but when they see what happens, they start to beat their breasts. I mean, it's no longer fun. It's no longer nice. Something has happened here. The darkness that has come over the place, they, 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 they don't comprehend what's happening. They're beating their breasts as they leave. 
the the incredible thing is that when Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, this is the most incredible thing. I, I don't know which one of us thinks that they may have the faith to sit there and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and die. None of us have the ability to speak our own death. Not one of us. (laughs) You, You could, by suicide, take your own life, but you cannot, by speaking, kill yourself. And the centurion who knows the power and authority of giving orders watches Jesus give an order to himself and says, now my spirit goes to you, Father, and he leaves his body dead on the cross. He looks at that and he goes, no one can do that. No one can do that. Something has transpired in the process of what's going on here that is incredibly unique. And in all the things that they've looked at, none of it matches what's going on. Then you have the veil that is torn in two. And suddenly, suddenly here in in the temple, the holy of holies in the holy place that have been separated by this veil, the presence of God that was in the holy of holies that could only be accessed by a priest once a year. And and that if he went in with sin in his life, he would die in the very presence of the glory of God. And and he had this this bell that would ring and and, and, uh, and, uh, they could pull out his dead body if he if he didn't survive. You know, and, and, and suddenly the veil is torn and access to God becomes available to anybody. I mean, everything is changing. The, the, the whole concept of, of, of the law that, was, that, that, that they had lived by and had established and grown up in and by centuries lived accordingly, suddenly something new is happening. <coughs> and yet, with all these other sermons that I could preach and go on for, for incredible lengths of time, the most important thing that we're looking at in this whole passage is the issue of salvation. Three times, you, three times we've got the focus on salvation. Three times. And it, it causes me to think back. There's actually three and maybe a fourth, but I, I, we'll get to that. The first three times where it deals with salvation, it starts off with the rulers mocking Jesus. Reminds me of what Jesus said back in 
Luke 4, where he said, physician, heal thyself. You'll say to me, physician, heal yourself. You, you know, it, it, we have these things that go back into the life of Jesus that, that are brought up again in the crucifixion. And here in this moment in time where, where the rulers start mocking Jesus, if you're really the Christ, save yourself. Let's see it. If, if you are the Messiah, the real one that's going to deliver us from all evil and everything, their understanding of Messiah is an earthly king who's going to rule in this world in time. And their concept of salvation is come down off the cross and then prove your innocence by doing that. Now Jesus could have called a thousand angels and he could have done that. That's not the issue. I mean, it's like the devil tempting Jesus out in the wilderness. But it's not going to happen because Jesus has chosen willingly to do this. And he gave his life willingly, as we saw, that he was the one. Nobody took his life. He gave his life. That's, that's just a powerful concept in itself. And now we've got, in the midst of all of this, the word save. The first one, the rulers who sneered. He saved others. He saved others. Remember, he healed them. He set them free. He forgave them of their sins. He opened the blind eyes. He raised the dead. He saved. They acknowledged that. He saved others. Let him save himself. He can't be who he says he is. And all the things that he did are no longer valid because he cannot save himself. So therefore, he's not the Messiah. That's finally something that they can take with them to appease their guilty consciences that they have finally gotten the right man out of their way and they can continue with the religious traditions the way they always have. The soldiers are the second one. They mocked him saying, if you are a king... Save yourself. Now, they're not interested in Messiah, religious issues. But if you really are a king, then you should save yourself. Where are those who are fighting for you? Where are the ones that, where's your army? If you're a king, who's going to save you from us? <laughs> you think you're a king? Hey, Caesar's our king. You, you can see the, 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 the political aspect here. Then comes the criminal his main interest is neither in the Christ, the religious issue, or in the political issue. His interest is in himself. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. <laughs> you know, get me down from here. I don't want to be here. Get me down. Now, this is fascinating to me. In the whole focus of salvation, the interest of the religious issue, the political issue, the personal issue, the criminal turns to the other one and he says, we are here justly because we deserve it. But this man has done nothing wrong. Why are you complaining about him? Uh, let's look at that again. It, it, it's, he says, we in, indeed, we are under the same sentence of condemnation. We indeed justly, 
for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, this is important. When I saw this this last week, I, I just, I wanted to jump up and down for joy. Look at what he says. The first word that he says is Jesus. Now, when people refer to Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke, how do they call him? What do they call him? Rabbi, teacher. They show him signs of respect. Son of David was what blind Bartimaeus called him. When this man turns to Jesus, he uses the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. That's the fourth time. Suddenly this guy turns to the only Lord who can save, and he says, I deserve what I'm getting, but please will you remember me? He appeals to the mercy of God. He turns to the one who's, who, to, of whom they said, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. They said that he is going to be the Lord of glory. He's going to sit on the throne of David, and he will, he will, he will deliver the, the, the tribe of Jacob. This is all part of who Jesus is. When I start to look at all the prophecies concerning Jesus, it was John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything that began with the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of his life, was geared towards this moment where he takes a choice and a decision to pass judgment, and he passes judgment on this criminal. What's the judgment that he passes on him? What's the judgment? He says to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The judgment of God upon the one who is a just criminal and deserves condemnation and knows he deserves condemnation receives the judge's judgment. Today you'll be with me in paradise. (laughs) What a way to die. Suddenly this man who has appealed to the mercy of God in the midst of the most trying, difficult time of his life, understands that God shows him mercy and not judgment. You see, the the whole focus of this cross and this whole context of the cross is about judgment. It's all about judgment. And it is the judgment of God against the sin of the world. It is the Father 
who has never broken a relationship throughout eternity with his own son, who now places upon him, it says in Isaiah, the iniquity of us all. And the wages of sin is death. And that is the death that Jesus died on this crucifixion. He goes through the judgment of the Father so that you and I can have the freedom that comes. And the freedom is that if the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The most incredible judgment of God. This is the judgment of God. It has to do with our faith. Even Jesus at this moment is modeling to us the whole focus of faith. He has to trust his Father that if he pays the penalty for our sin because he is innocent and he is righteous, that the devil will overstep his bounds and that the Father will not only judge him with our sins, but he will judge the devil and say, you have no right to keep him in death. And he will come back from the dead. He has to trust his father. He has faith that his father will raise him from the dead when he dies. When he goes through the agony of having the judgment of your sin upon his life, then he trusts his father to raise him from the dead. And that is what God requires from each one of us who places our trust and our hope and our faith in Jesus. When we stand before God, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, it says in Hebrews chapter 9. And when we get there, I want to tell you something. God's going to look at us and he's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The incredible aspect of faith is that the judgment of God to those who believe is that we do not get what we deserve. That's the incredible part of the offering of Jesus. The others judged Jesus by mocking and criticizing, making their own way seem right. But Jesus judges the one who has faith. And lets him know that he is accepted because of his faith. God judges Jesus with our sin so that we can get the free gift of God. Let's look at some of the other judgments that Jesus carried out and will carry out on the day that we meet him face to face. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly, I certainly will not cast out. Confidence. When we stand before God, will he cast us away? He says, certainly I will not. That's an incredible judgment right there. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Uh, that doesn't sound like hellfire and damnation to me. The judgment of God is you come to him, then he will give you rest. 
eternal rest. For everyone, it said in Romans 10, we've studied this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what's the next word? Will be saved. Not might, not hopefully, will be saved. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. Is the focus there on what I do, or have done, or might do? It has to do with what I believe. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing or the iniquity of us all to fall on him. No matter which way you look at Jesus, the whole purpose of the crucifixion was this. God's love for you to save you. That's the purpose. The whole focus here, some pass judgment, some pass ridicule, some will look and say, well, it's not worth all the trouble you've got in your life and all the persecution and all the tribulation that's going and coming and, and everything that we wrestle with. I want to tell you, eternity is worth it. And eternity with God is worth it. And when Jesus paid the price here for my sin, then it is not on the basis of what I do that I stand before him. And I will not be entering into his kingdom based on what I've done. Now, I might stand there and get different rewards because I've done things that he told me to do and I did some things he didn't tell me to do and maybe I wasn't obedient in doing things that I should have done. And so there will be rewards in heaven, but that's not what this is about. This is about the clarity and the assurance that God gives those who put their hope and trust in Jesus. And it's not something like the, like the uh, thief on the cross found out. It was as simple as saying, I confess, I confess in front of everybody, I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve it. It's a confession of faith. And the confession of my sin that I bring about, I'm asking Jesus for forgiveness. And as simple as I bring it is as simple as he does it. There's a lot we can say about forgiveness, about how God's not going to remember our sins anymore and removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. That's important. But I can come with confidence that if there's anything in my life that causes shame or guilt, I can bring it to the Lord. And He will forgive. His whole focus and desire is not to beat me up, to lecture me, to whip me, to put me down, to cast me out. That's not who our Father in Heaven is. 
But he comes and he's willing to do whatever it takes to save me from sin and from the consequences of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Lord Jesus, as we gather here today around our communion, let us be mindful that you went to the judgment seat to carry out the judgment against us so that we might go free. In Jesus' name, we thank you for that. We express our gratitude. Amen.